In mid-November at the PRX Podcast Garage in Boston, Dangerous Vision held a special live recording in front of an audience from the blind and visually impaired community. Randy's guest is Wick Grosbeck, owner of the Boston Celtics, chair of the board of Mass Ear, and father to a young man who is blind. This is part one of a two-part conversation. Please listen carefully. Hi, I'm Randy Cohen. I teach finance and entrepreneurship at Harvard Business School, and I sit on the board of the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired. I have retinitis pigmentosa, a degenerative condition of the retina. Here on the Dangerous Vision Podcast, we get a chance to talk to people who have something interesting to say about visual impairments and blindness. In 1992, uh, my uh, wife, Corinne, wife at the time, Corinne, and I welcomed Campbell into the world. And Campbell had, I think, a very advanced, basically, version of retinitis pigmentosa called labors, uh, amaurosis, which, as we found out, I think was a uh, really a catch-all term for this baby can't see. We share the same core three interests in life, uh, business, blindness, and basketball, the three Bs. But I have spent 27 years working, uh, trying to help people who are uh, looking and researching. And meanwhile, I spent 27 years uh, glorying in loving and devoted to both of our kids. I really, really like to have my blindness cured. I'm being honest about it. Cure, no cure, it's all good because like, blind people are awesome as they are. Well, thank you all so much for uh, being here today. I- I've given a lot of speeches and stuff, you know, obviously I'm a professor, but, you know, th- th- I think of this as my first, you know, live show uh, of, of uh, any kind. And, you know, since, since we're all frustrated uh, uh, rock stars at heart, uh, it's just really sort of thrilling to, to have this experience. And I'm exceptionally thrilled to have uh, Wick here today with us. Um, you know, uh, when, when David said, you know, who would you like to have uh, for the podcast? I said, look, Wick is the guy I want because we share, uh, you know, I-, I don't know Wick well enough to really say this, but I'm just going to say it anyway. The same core three interests in life, uh, business, blindness, and basketball, the three Bs. And um, and so, uh, you know, how is this not going to be a great conversation for me? You know, whether anybody else will find it interesting remains uh, to be seen. Um, and so we're going to talk about all three of those, uh, probably more or less in, in that order. But I thought I'd start with something else. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a lazy, lazy man, and so I don't do as much preparation uh, for these podcasts as, as I should. But this time, I decided to take it over the top and spend like 20 or 30 seconds reading Wick's uh, Wikipedia page. And, um, it, and it so. It takes most people 10. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe your brailler was slow. Yeah, exactly. I got it. I got Well, you know, it's funny because I, I read stuff using, um, you know, the, the various uh, voice methods because uh, I don't, I don't uh, have braille, unfortunately. Um, and, uh, and in fact, uh, Sassy really inspired me uh, because I was like crawling along at like 340 words a minute and she told me she was at, you know, 650 or some crazy thing. I'm like, all right, I got to try to catch up. I haven't caught up yet, but at least I'm not as far behind as I, as I as I was. So yeah, it's, it needs a little work. But the um, uh, but I I saw on there uh, uh, some stuff about uh, you uh, being on an undefeated national champion uh, lightweight crew team at Princeton. Were you a crew star when you headed off to college, or was it something you took up? I don't think there's such a thing as a crew star. Just no matter, <laughs> <laughs> which is part of the appeal of it, really. Yeah. It's just uh, but uh, so it's boats business. Blindness and basketball. There you go. Okay, the good. four Bs. Well done. Okay, well played. <laughs> um, so I, I didn't know anything about it. I, um, there, I hadn't ever rowed in a crew shell in a shell, uh, but it was there at college. And my high school girlfriend had gone off to Rollins College, and I was going to college in New Jersey. 
um, so far away from Florida, and the captain of the crew was wearing a Rollins College hat, and I thought, aha. And he said, yes, we do go down there and row in February for 10 days. And I said, well, why don't you sign me up for this sport? So I was going to get a free trip. <laughs> so that's how I started rowing was uh, Cherchez la femme, I think is what they say. Um, so, uh, but it became, it, I, I, I love the sport and I um, love being in a boat with eight other people, eight of us rowing and then the ninth steering or the first steering and the other eight rowing, whatever. But uh, uh, just that kind of teamwork and having that all meshed together. It's like, imagine riding on a, I ride on a tandem with my son, Campbell. Uh, imagine riding on a, you know, eight or nine person bike and how fast you can go and how it would feel to be flying like that and everybody in sync and you can feel everybody um, hitting the water and, and pulling. And it, it's an amazing feeling to go fast in a boat. And so once you, once you feel that, you have to do it. Do you think um, do you think blind people could do it effectively, do. or do you think that so you, you don't think you necessarily need to say the feel would be there to be able to tell uh, to be able to stay in sync? There could be uh, also auditory cues, but there's definitely feel cues, and mm -hmm. I think there could be auditory cues, and I think it could definitely happen. We, it, um, I'm sure it does happen. I always ask people towards the end of the podcast to, if there are any um, uh, books that uh, that they especially recommend or, or, or like one book that I love that's on this subject. Maybe one of the reasons I was thinking about it is uh, The Boys in the Boat by uh, yeah. uh, Daniel Hino. Just a, a wonderful, uh, wonderful book. Did, did that feel true to your experience? Because obviously an author can describe something in a way that seems fascinating to me and then people who did it would be like, yeah, it wasn't like that at all. The, that, that's, that's a, really that's nice a perfectly good best-selling book. The one to read on crew might be The Amateurs by David Haberstam. It's a terrific oh. book about uh, the Harvard-Yale race and way back when, I think it's... Uh, Fantastic. And of course, Halberstam wrote one of the great uh, basketball books of all time uh, uh, as well. So, uh, wonderful writer. So, um, so let's let's uh, turn to... The author of Boys in the Boat is going to come in the driveway here and honk his horn. Oh, that's good. <laughs> irritated. Yeah. They, uh, <laughs> that's all. It'll make, make for a good podcast. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. Yeah, exactly. That's what we want in podcasting, a little a little uh, action, you know, a little a little um, uh, controversy. So, um, so let's let's talk a little about what's, I guess, now the second B, business. And, um, and you know, look... I teach a course with 65, this year, 65 teams of students who are uh, building businesses uh, while they're in school. Um, so, you know, what I, and, and some of them are, uh, were nice enough to uh, join us here tonight. They're here in the audience. And, and uh, you know, I always joke that the, the students are very clever, right? They realize that if they, if they wait till they graduate and then they start a business, now they're out in the cold, cold world, right? No visible means of support, trying to run a business. And if things don't work out, now they're desperately searching for a job, right? But if they start a business while they're in school, well, they already had a plan to, you know, kind of pay for their life while they were in school. Um, and uh, they've got all the, you know, uh, kind of uh, uh, generosity that Mother Harvard can offer in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, computer facilities and conference rooms and all those things. And, um, and you know, if, if they fail, uh, if the business doesn't work out, you know, just take the offer from JP Morgan, you know? So, so there's a nice like fallback scenario there. Uh, but, uh, but, but the, the fact is uh, it's really, it's just been one of the great experiences of my life to teach these dedicated uh, young people and their incredible uh, 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 vigor and energy as they pursue really fascinating entrepreneurial opportunities in every uh, sector. And, uh, you know, as a person who is one of the top, uh, you know, investors in the world and does venture investing and so forth, maybe you could tell us a little about, A, your career and how you got involved in all that and what you do. And then, uh, and then maybe I'll, I'll push for, for some advice for, for uh, young people or any people who are starting businesses. Gosh, uh, well, you've, you've, you've very generously uh, and sadly overstated my <laughs> accomplishments in investing, but I did start investing in the 90s. I had been a venture capital lawyer in the 80s, a securities lawyer doing paperwork for IPOs and things when Silicon Valley was really getting going in the mid-80s. So I, I was lucky enough to be out there. So I saw these amazing deals and people starting these companies, but I wasn't 
involved, but I went to business school so I could become more involved. So I started investing in the 90s with some great partners, and it was a really bubbly time, so it was really hard to do poorly. <laughs> so despite my apparent efforts, I didn't, you know, we did well, uh, thanks to them and to the markets and all, so that was all good. And then that led to really what I've done since 2002, besides working uh, with research, playing drums in a rock band mm -hmm. and uh, other things, but really the basketball idea, which was yeah. not starting a business, but was buying a business that had been started in the 1940s. And so actually when people come to me and say, look, I really want to do a startup, I want to do a startup, sometimes I actually say, in, in terms of advice or just having a conversation, so you know, it's perfectly reasonable. I mean, the deal of my lifetime was actually buying something that someone else thought of. I didn't have to invent basketball. I didn't mm. invent the Celtics. <laughs> and sometimes I wish, you know, some people, uh, you know, I like to tell people I invented basketball, but it, <laughs> not true. Um, but the idea of taking a company and running it better and running and trying to run it right or better or as well as you can and then extend its reach in the community, it's not just all about profit and loss. In fact, with the Celtics, the whole reason to do it had nothing to do with finances at all. It was to try to bring back Celtic pride and do some great things if we possibly could. And it's a big partnership. It's not just me. But roundabout way of saying you don't need to start something and do something no one's ever done before to have a fulfilling, um, potentially fulfilling and enjoyable career where you can help employ a bunch of people, provide needed services, and uh, do some good in the community. It can be something that someone else started that you take over. I was, it's funny because one of the one of the most popular courses at Harvard Business School uh, is a, a fund called uh, a fund a, a course uh, called Entrepreneurship Through Acquisition, uh, started by uh, by two professors, one of whom's a, a dear friend and mentor of mine, Rick Rubeck, and uh, and uh, and it's based around exactly yeah, this, like this concept. concept. Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. exactly. Uh, you have to uh, have they, a word with them. That was my idea. Oh, is that right? <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, I'm sure he'd be happy to have you in okay. class and and give you uh, and give you credit for for what you've done. And in fact, I was just talking to students uh, earlier today uh, who are who are working on projects uh, exactly of that type. So uh, look, obviously not everybody can uh, acquire something that has the sort of extraordinary brand value and history uh, of the Boston Celtics, but um, do you have uh, advice for people then pursuing that kind of opportunity? What should they look for? Well, I just finished uh, actually being guest lecturer just literally an hour ago at a class at Carroll School at BC, so mm. the Carroll School of Management over there, um, and we were talking about career choices and what to do, and we had a really nice conversation with some really uh, wonderful students over there, and I did, and um, I said, you know, everybody says to do what you love, and what's a way, how do you get at that? How do you get at that? And I said, if you, you know, everybody has loans, and there's all sorts of burdens, and people need to go do this and that and the other thing, but if you do try to think for a minute what you would do if you really didn't have to work, if you were just so fortunate that the bills were going to be magically paid somehow, and this is a very rare circumstance, but what just what if? Just do the thought experiment of if you didn't have to do any particular thing, what would you do? How would you spend your life? You really wouldn't go for 50 years and sit on the beach. It would, it would get old for most people mm. in you know, a few weeks, a few months, well, maybe a decade. But, um, <laughs> but what would you do? And actually, a surprising number of people say you know, they like to teach. They might even work with uh, students with special needs or do something really meaningful. But teaching actually comes up quite a bit when people say, what would they do for love? And, uh, but there are other things that they might do. But I say, you know, try to work that in, even if you've got a paying job. First of all, try to make that your paying job if you possibly can and just get by. But also just work it in in the weekends. But by the time I can guarantee you, I'm in my 50s uh, still. Uh, <laughs> Wikipedia says so, so yeah. it must be true. Yeah, it must be true. <laughs> it's getting close, though. <laughs> but, um, you know, 
by the, when you're 20s, you can do almost anything in your 30s. Okay, you maybe have made a change or two, but by the time you're 40, 50, you know, we only go around once, is my belief. And uh, you better try to do something that you enjoy, that you look forward to getting into work, uh, that you're doing something really meaningful. And I don't know how to do it. I lucked into it with the Celtics idea that I had in 02, but um, I wish we could all be so lucky to find their real avocation. I think people in this room have found their avocation, and I think Sassy would be an example, and she's raised her hand, thank you. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I guess I just, that's really my only comment on it. It's a lengthy, rambling comment, but if you can find out how to do what you love, you can possibly pull it off. Um, you've got to go for that. You can't, you can't grind your way through life. It's not, not worth it. I, I, I give this advice to students as well when, when, when they're making career choices. I say, I say, look, think of it this way. Like the, the rewards tend to go to the people who are the very best and almost, and, and, and almost no one is talented to be the very best without working like a lunatic. And it's, and almost no one is a sufficiently uh, has has a sufficiently sort of grinder attitude to use your word to work like a lunatic if they don't like what they're doing. Yep. So therefore, even if all you want is to achieve in terms of you know money or you know traditional definitions, even if that was all you cared about, you should still do the thing uh, you love. I, I uh, well absolutely I, that's I, well said. Yeah, I, I, I had a I had a friend in high school. I, I, I probably shouldn't say his name. I'll just say his 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 name was JJ. Yet I, uh, I won't say his last name because uh, he might not want me to. But uh, uh, and he I, and I call this the JJ lesson because what happened is that his um uh, his father was actually a, a teacher at our school and he was one of the smartest kids in school. He was also you know on state championship hockey team. Just an amazingly talented and and great person. And um and he went off to you know one of the one of the very top colleges and uh, everybody sort of expected that he'd be a, a, a lawyer, which was sort of the thing to do back in the 80s, or maybe some kind of uh, business person or whatever. And we came back, uh, and, and instead he decided to be a teacher, like his father. And that was not viewed as a prestige direction to go uh, at, 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 in 1983, you know, when we went off to college. But by our fifth reunion, he was already the dean of one of the top boys' schools in the country because he really loved, loved so teaching. Yeah. And so, like, even from just a pure, like, being, you know, prominent and money and all that stuff, he was way better off. He would have been like just finishing law school, right? And and so I, I, I'm really a believer yeah. in this and notion. Well, my own lesson along those lines uh, was just last night we had a game and I had a friend in from London and he brought his father. Mm -hmm. And his father had never seen a basketball game of any description in his entire life. And it was the most delightful, likable guy, despite his sad lack of knowledge about pro basketball. <laughs> um, and so we were sitting there courtside having, and the game was amazing and touch and go, this and that, and Fans were going crazy, and and every single basket from the first minute of the first period, and this is you know a game in November. It's early in the season. It's it's a what was it a Monday night? I mean, gosh, um, you know, really not in the scheme of things. It's not a finals game, um, and I'm and the ball goes up, and I'm sort of leaning over trying <laughs> to work it into the basket, and then I'm like gritting my teeth. I'm going oh, you know, when anything happens, it's just like 90 seconds in the game, and right. the father looks at me, you know, turns to me and says. How long have you been, you know, in ownership of this team? And I said, oh, 17 years. Mm -hmm. And he goes, and it's the first few shots, and you're just like in agony. Yeah. I said, well, yeah. I have to yeah. pay attention. You know, so <laughs> 17 years in, 82 game, 82 to 100 games a year, which I either watch or attend, and I'm yeah. still into it. So I, you just have to find what 
you're willing to do for that amount of time. It doesn't mean I'm so great, but it means I'm willing to keep trying to be good. Yeah, yeah. It, exactly. It gives you it gives you a chance at, at great right. success. Obviously, you can't fake that. Yeah, that, I, I I I strongly agree. So to, if you could, uh, I would, if, but if you can't if, fake if, it. Exactly. If there's young people out there listening, tell your parents that the Harvard professor and the super rich sports team owner oh, say please. that 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 doing what you, you love yeah. is the way to go. If that you did if a you list love of the history, NBA owners, I'd be the last on the list in, in financial <laughs> metrics, but. But among the top in happiness, I think. That, yeah. So. Well, that look, I, I think that's actually a, a point of pride to be able yeah. to, uh, you know, it's like anybody anybody can own a yeah. team if if you know they have you know a hundred billion dollars, right? Yeah. Uh, it's I think actually the real accomplishment uh, <laughs> is is to is to be able to. I, I yeah. would I would totally take special pride in that. Okay. Um, as I think you do too. I don't know um, what to say at it, this point. It's, it, <laughs> it, 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 it sounds like, me. It sounds like you share my view that it's a, that it's a point of pride. So I'm, I think we're on the I, same page. I, you're right. I'm, I'm not made of money, and I am proud of that. Thank you. Yeah. That's I, I'm I'm quite sincere. So um, do you keep teasing because I'm di- look. I really just want to spend the whole time, the whole hour and a half talking about basketball, and um, and I'm resisting that temptation because I know that some of our listeners may not be as huge pro basketball fans as you and I are. Well, and so I feel that in, in fa- yeah, exactly, we're going to win them over. Wick. We are going to make them. If fans. they could see that I brought the trophy here yes. uh, tonight, the I wanted Celtics to mention that. Trophy. So Wick. Wicked active. For any of, Knicks fans out there, it, it's um, <laughs> it's a really nice. It's gold. It has a basketball <laughs> on the top. Wicked active. Great kindness <laughs> brought the Larry O'Brien Trophy that the the Celtics won uh, for the 2008 uh, championship and allowed us all to uh, take pictures with it. And and you know since many of us here uh, can't see, he you know we were able to you know touch it and really feel it. It's it's got a a, a sort of a gold golden uh, basketball um, uh, as as kind of a key feature of it, and you get to you know feel the smoothness of it. It's it's, it's really great. And uh, and you know, of course, I, I I grew up in Philadelphia, and I'm an enormous uh, fan of the Philadelphia 76ers. Uh, uh, the Celtics, uh, uh, you know, or let me say, the Celtics are our rival. In fact, I'm going to tell you a story about Wick in this in a minute. And and uh, and so, you know, I feel like Wick brought it just to torture me. Um, <laughs> it's been quite a while. We did win the title in uh, in 1983, which was my senior year of high school. So the best possible time in my life to win it. I cannot tell you how much it meant to be and to me. Um, but it's funny because I was talking uh, to Wick before we. Did this when, when I called to, to beg him to do this, which uh, thank you again for, it took for agreeing you one to do it. Ask and I said yes. He was I'd he was super to. nice. He said yes right away. I was so terrified to call, and he said yes right away. So great, and um and and I I told him that I was a Sixers fan, and and Wick said in the nicest possible way indicated that he really pretty strongly did not like the Sixers and did not uh, wish well uh well, for the, the, their, their wins. <laughs> and and I cannot tell I'm you. I'm hoping this goes viral. I cannot. <laughs> I, I, I can't even begin to tell you how happy it made me because you have to understand the Celtics have won. Is it is it seventeen championships? Is that it is seventeen. Seventeen championships. Look, you got to give credit where to. Seventeen. It was sixteen when I got there. Yeah. I mean, you know, they, a lot of people built the Celtics into <laughs> yeah. the greatest. Yeah, but yeah. anyway. But seventeen championships. Me. My Sixers have have, uh, have only won uh, two in all in all these years. And um and uh, but um so really like in Philadelphia the Celtics are our arch rivals and uh but. I had always kind of suspected that maybe this was sort of a one-way rivalry where, you know, we really hate the Celtics and the Celtics are like, oh, Philadelphia, yawn, yeah. you are know. You, um, and then when Are you said, or are you not the Lakers <laughs> or the Wick, Knicks, right? And then That's when Wick the made it clear that he really had strong native feelings to so the Sixers, it made me feel like, okay, all right, this is a battle. It's good. Yeah. So um, No, we yeah. respect them, and they're actually picked to be better than we are this year and beat us in the first game. And, so and, I well, so, and, the Celtic, the and Celtics are having a great – we're, we're going to talk a lot more about it. I will just say this. The only time I 
root for the Celtics is when they're playing the Lakers. Then I root for them like crazy. Um, <laughs> so you have to have Somehow these. we struggle through yeah. no matter, yeah. Randy, whether you're rooting for us or not. Coming up on Dangerous Vision. So that the deaf may hear and the blind may see. That's what it says. That's the founding principle of Mass Ioneer. And Campbell had, I think, a very advanced basically version of retinitis pigmentosa called labors uh, amaurosis, which as we found out, I think was a uh, really a catch-all term for this baby can't see. But first, Life as a Blind Person by Executive Director of the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired, Sassy Outwater-Wright. In winter solstice or Yule tradition, there's a practice called singing up the dawn. People sit up all night long through the longest night of the year. And in the early hours just before sunrise, they begin to sing and sing and sing as the sun is rising. And by doing this, it feels like you are the one lifting the sun up into the sky because you've been singing so loud and so long and so strong. And blindness is no different. I had my very first guide dog, Carrot. No, not the vegetable that looks like my hair. K-A-R-A-T, like as in 24 karat gold. And Carrot was my very first guide dog. She was a Yellow Lab Golden Retriever Cross, and her birthday was December 23rd. I remember that about her. But Carrot did not make it out of class as a guide dog. A week into our training together, uh, she needed to be switched out. She decided that being a guide dog was not the career for her. She liked cats too much. Getting a different guide dog felt like singing up the dawn to me at that point. I was this little bratty teenage kid and being partnered with another dog was probably one of the darkest periods of my life. I felt like I had failed. I felt like I couldn't do it. I felt like this thing I had hoped for my entire life, being a guide dog handler, was suddenly not going to be possible for me because I couldn't get this guide dog to like working with me. And then they brought me Arlen. Arlen was this 95-pound giant black Labrador with a head that looked like a bicycle seat and these piercing yellow eyes. And so when we got back from our first walk, I put my head down and I started crying. And Arlen leaned forward and started licking the tears off my face. And I pulled away. I, I looked away from him, not ready to seek comfort from another dog yet. And Arlen lay down in front of me and put his chin on his paws and just stared up at me. And you could read his thoughts. He was just laying there looking at me, studying me, going, how do I help her? She didn't want me to kiss her, but she's clearly sad. Something's wrong. What do I as a guide dog do to fix this situation for her? And that was the moment that I started loving Arlen and feeling like I had sung up the dawn. This dog was so eager to help me and to take care of me, and that was all he wanted to pay attention to. He didn't want anything else to distract him. He wanted to help me and love me and take care of me and see that I was responding to that. And for me, that was that moment. And I think in any blindness situation, after a dark period, after a period of feeling like you failed, you come to a moment where you realize, I did do this thing. I did managed to use a screen reader for the first time. I managed to read a word in Braille. And that's how you start to move into a place where your disability doesn't feel so terrifying. And you feel like you've made it through the longest night and the sun is coming up over the edge of the world. 
So I hope that for you in the coming year, if you are dealing with a disability and it is new to you, that you find that first spark of I can do this, that you have that first moment singing up the dawn and you keep reaching for that next moment and the next one. And for life as a blind person, I'm Sassy Outwater Wright. Let's talk about uh, blindness. I feel like this is the Dangerous Vision Podcast. You are the first um, non-blind guest we've had on the Dangerous Vision Podcast, so maybe you could say a little about uh, how you got connected to blindness, and then we can talk about all the work you've done with Perkins and, and Mass Eye and Ear and so forth. Oh, well, thank you. Well, being described as non-blind is actually is really cool. I mean, I don't, I don't, not cool, blind, non-blind, You're, but I mean, I just haven't been described that way. I, I really think it's pretty If we put an eye patch on you, you, you could literally be the embodiment in this room of the expression that, you know, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Oh, okay. I'm not the king. I, there are a number of kings and queens in the audience, and it's not me. But I'm very uh, honored to be in this group, by the way, a, a fabulous group, and thank you very much for having me here. So uh, about how blindness touched my life. So in 1992, uh, my uh, wife, Corinne, wife at the time, Corinne, and I welcomed Campbell into the world. And Campbell had, I think, a very advanced, basically, version of retinitis pigmentosa mm -hmm. called Labors uh, amaurosis, which, as we found out, I think was a uh, really a catch-all term for this baby can't see, mm -hmm. I think is a fair statement. And we, it was certainly a fair statement that he couldn't see. And it's, uh, we've now found the gene, others found the gene, but we've done a lot of uh, genetic uh, searching work through Ed Stone at Iowa and others. And I just always had a bent towards trying to understand it and seeing if uh, something could be done about it. And I've listened carefully earlier tonight as we were talking about, others were talking about, uh, well, it's okay to look for cures, but let's not, or not. Uh, it's okay not to want to have a quote unquote cure. It's okay. Let's not diminish the people who uh, don't have vision, who are blind, um, uh, by saying, well, this has to be fixed. That's a, maybe a belittling or demeaning or inappropriately uh, way to think about it. So as Cam so, if I have offended in any way, I certainly would apologize. As Campbell's dad, with my baby who couldn't see, I felt that a, a need to go and try to examine if whether in Campbell's situation um, it could be changed or in future generations because it became pretty clear that it was a genetic thing that we could find the gene and I don't know give people a choice whether or not they they wanted to um, you know so I, I don't know what to say but I don't mean to offend I just but I have spent 27 years working uh, trying to help people who are uh, looking and researching and meanwhile spent 27 years uh, glorying in loving and devoted to both of our kids uh, and just spent four straight days uh, and nights with Campbell here and in New York where I also live with my wife Amelia and her kids and uh, just just is, you know, just heaven when I'm with Campbell. So uh, he's teaching music. He has gotten through Perkins with a lot of help and I'd like to just have a hand for Perkins School for the Blind, which yeah. is... Um, he has uh, worked with the Mass Association for the, uh, for the Blind uh, very successfully, um, and we appreciate them very much. He has uh, um, benefited greatly from the Threshold Program at Leslie University, which was a terrific program for, and he has met two fab, a number of fabulous friends, but two roommates who, uh, three of them live together, um, and it's just, you know, one is, uh, the other two roommates have, uh, their own physical challenges, uh, cerebral palsy, and uh, when the three of them go out walking, it's there's a wheelchair, and there's someone walking, and there's Campbell with the cane, and they're hanging on to each other, and they're going out to like 
wherever they go and going out to dinner and just living independent lives and uh, wonderful. Um, so Campbell's benefited from a lot of um, help and love along the way, and he's given a lot of help and love to a lot of people on the way. So. That's great, and and you know, look, you mentioned this this issue of of, of the question of cures. Not look, I, I yeah, uh, uh, Sassy Atwater Wright, our uh, executive director here at Mavi, uh, is amazing. She was joking earlier about how you know she and I she and I will uh, uh, go back and forth on on issues, and uh, you know, look. I would really, really like to have my blindness cured. I'm being honest about mm -hmm. it. Sassy is, uh, she, her view is cure, no cure, it's all good because right. like blind people are awesome as they are. And obviously she's 100% right. And yet at the same time, I would like to have my blindness cured. So right. don't, no need to I apologize but it was, here. It, it's thought provoking and, and, yeah. and so I'm, I'm happy to have my thoughts provoked along those lines. And NAPFI has been great with us as well, I, I, should, I neglected to say, and uh, but it's true. So we're very appreciative. And anyway, it's a, uh, it's it's not something, I don't think Campbell wanted to face uh, it himself in a largely sighted world to face blindness himself. So there have been many people along the way who have uh, helped. Yeah, there's, and, 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 and look, you know, certainly, the, you know, the, the researchers who do the amazing work uh, to push to, you know, work on blindness and, and all, uh, uh, frankly, you know, all ailments, uh, you know, have, uh, have, you know, nothing but love for, for them and for mm -hmm. philanthropists like you who've made such a difference uh, in, in making that research possible, you know, absolutely just uh, enormous appreciation. Um, so, you know, tell us about, you know, um, uh, tell us about Perkins. I mean, you, you know, obviously your son went to Perkins and then you've been involved with Perkins. You know, what can you, what can you tell us? Uh, because not all our listeners may know much about what a school for the blind does and how that works and how they manage kids with different levels of blindness. And, and, you know, a lot of pe young people who are blind do have other challenges mm -hmm. in their lives. Mm -hmm. How the heck do they do it? That's really what I want to know. Well, we, uh, so, uh, Campbell's mom, Corinne, is the chair of Perkins to this day and does an amazing job there and always has and has given so much to that school. So she would be much better person to talk about it. But as a, uh, but she and I were thinking what to do when Campbell was one or two years old out in California. We didn't see the infrastructure of trained uh, occupational therapists, speech therapists, uh, Braille instructors, you know, the people that we really wanted to give Campbell exposure to as he became uh, you know, ready to be educated. And so we came back to Perkins to see what uh, they do for blind babies and infants and toddlers. And uh, my mother had volunteered at Perkins years ago when we lived back here and I was growing up here. And so we knew of Perkins a bit. And so we came back to see, and by the time we'd spent a day at the school, we knew that we'd be moving here from San Francisco. So we had, I grew up here, but we were out there making our way uh, in the world in, in the Bay Area, and we moved back so that Campbell could go to Perkins. So, and let, let me just pause you there and say, yep. even an extraordinary great city like San Francisco, like they don't have anything to they, match. They didn't have, at the time anyway, they didn't have the Amazing. infrastructure of special education. They didn't have the focus, and I think whether it's the Kennedy family or it's just the history of Perkins all the way back to the 1800s mm. and Mass Hynear since the 1800s, whatever it is, but Massachusetts has much better special ed than Northern California, or it did at the time. Mm. Um, and it's it's the graduate schools here turning out graduate uh, trained uh, therapists. And so there were three or four in the Bay Area, and if we had asked all of them to drop everything and come give Campbell 20 hours a week, we could have done that at the expense of everybody else. We, we couldn't do that, obviously. We wouldn't be able to do that. But 20 hours a week was Perkins standard because they're staffed to give 20 hours a week of uh, education and care and, well, education oh. to kids. Yeah. And so we couldn't have 20 hours a week in, in the Bay Area. So it was just a basic, so mm -hmm. you, hopefully you can now, yeah. but I don't know. So we moved, and uh, Perkins as an example for, they have a deaf-blind program as well, and for 
the young kids of any sort, they, they have a box, and I think they called it the day box or the time box or something, but it was with slots in it, and it was essentially like a chronology of the day or a map of the day. So at the beginning of the day, it's like when you wake up or when you arrive at school, and there might be a diaper there and say, oh, go use the bathroom. Okay, and then there's a spoon. Well, let's have some breakfast. And then there's a harmonica. Well, let's have our music class. And so it's a map of the day for a blind or a deafblind person learning the concept of time. And for Campbell, who has no light perception to understand the concept of a day passing or the time or a regular routine, uh, this seemed like a pretty, I mean, I, you know, a pretty uh, good way. So when we see things like this, we're like, okay, this is a great way for Campbell to, uh, you know, maybe he'll like it. Maybe he'll start to, and he loved it. And so he stayed at Perkins on and off until he was 21 years old. So, so they do a great job. And as I say, Corinne is the chair. She leads the way. They have, I mean, she is the person uh, uh, that you should have on the broadcast next. Yeah, we should, <laughs> we, we should reach out. David, uh, make it happen. Make it so. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, so, um, so why don't we talk about your work with, um, with uh, Mass Ioneer? Well, thank you. So uh, more recently, around 2010, I guess it was, or 11, I, uh, someone said, would you want to join the board of Mass Ioneer? I said, boy, I'm on a lot of boards, and that, I mean, that's fine. Can we, perhaps I could be supportive of Mass Ioneer. And, and I said, actually, you know, come to think of it, no, I'd like to, I'll, I'll come as long as I can be the chair. <laughs> and that was, because <laughs> the chair, I think the chair was open at the time. But the point is that, um, that was, sounds really arrogant and everything, but I, I suddenly felt like this could be something that I could uh, maybe, maybe do well. And if I couldn't do well, I would stop. Um, and I'd hopefully be the first to tell myself I wasn't doing it well. But what's happened, um, this all sounds terrible, but I don't know, I just felt like I wanted to, um, we had had a patient experience at Mass Hynear and I would felt it could have been improved upon back in the day. Um, I just felt like this was an unmet, uh, unsettled thing in my past and I wanted to understand more about Mass Hynear and I realized that they, uh, Anyway, I realized that maybe we could do something together. So we and just pause yep. because remember, our listening audience may not know anything. So explain okay. about the relationship Mass General and, and right. So and Mass Eye and Ear founded, I think it was 1824. So it's been 200 years of uh, really kind of leading the world in blindness and deafness research. The largest collection of researchers in, in blindness and in deafness in the world, and so largest and among the best. And um, a part of the Harvard hospital system, we train the ophthalmologists and otolaryngologists for Harvard. Say that five times fast. Um, <laughs> they, they call them EMTs, but yeah. uh, they're otolaryngologists. And uh, so we, we're part of Harvard Medical School, but that doesn't come with you know tons of funding. And so you actually have to pay your way. Um, they were right next to Mass General and had always treated their, done their eye and ear. We had run there. We had been the home of their eye and ear departments but not formally affiliated until just a couple of years ago. Last year, we agreed to become a partner in the partner's healthcare system along, right alongside a tier one at the top tier with Mass General and the Brigham. So three institutions founded in the 1810s, 1820s are all at the top tier of partners and we're uh, in it together. So now we're doing the eye and ear care for all of these hospitals, um, including uh, the Brigham and Spalding Rehab and everywhere else. So it's a, it's a, great, uh, it's a great thing for actually to ensure, otherwise we'd be the last freestanding eye and ear hospital in the country and the new insurance laws and reimbursement uh, declines. Um, and with the rates we were trying to negotiate single-handedly with reinsurers, it just wasn't happening. So we, to survive, we partnered with partners and now we're thriving. It's, um, you know, I really actually like your story about becoming, uh, about how you became chair because this is something that really only in 
the last few years, in, in my 50s really, I've gotten to the point where every once in a while there will be an issue that needs to be dealt with and I'll be like, you know what, um, you know what's needed to fix this problem is uh, is for Randy to deal with it, you know? And like, <laughs> right. uh, like right. I, can, I think I can handle this. And I spend most of my life just being like, well, if somebody makes me do something, I'll do yeah, it. No, Otherwise, no, I'll kind proactive. of do it. Yeah. But then at a certain point in life, you start right. to realize, actually, I'm the guy who knows this, you know? And and like, not that often, you know, for me. Well, Other people more often, you know. But you're a professor for a living. I think it's pretty much every day. Well, <laughs> no, I think it's the reverse. See, I think you become professor because you don't want to like have people to manage. And you, okay. don't wanna, you know, you see what I'm saying? It's, it's sort of avoiding responsibility in a way. It's like, yeah, of course you have to do your own research and you have to teach your yeah. class, but you don't really have to take on those bigger challenges. Now, many of my colleagues at Harvard Business School do, in fact, take on extraordinary challenges and I, I'm honored to, to get to work with them. Uh, but, it, you know, I just, I just want to send that message out to the world that what Wick's saying here, that, that every once in a while you have to say, you know what, I, I'm the guy who can do this and, and, uh, or, the, or the woman who can do this and, and that that is really meaningful. So what was it you thought you could do I thought and what's happened? That's a great question, Randy. Uh, so I uh, looked at the institution, and I heard what was going on over there, and they said, you know, the reimbursement's declining, things are getting tough, it's hard to keep this world's best level, level of research going. And so I asked for a board retreat, and we went away for a couple or three days, and see, it's just not me at Mass Heiner, clearly it's an entire board, a class of a, a whole crew of donors and everything else, uh, you know, thousands of people, uh, and millions of patients kind of waiting for the, you know, the next uh, advances, hopefully. Blindness and deafness, and uh, I said, "Well, we have to have a capital campaign." And they said, "Well, we had one a while ago, and we, it was okay, and this is what we did." And I said, "Well, you know, let's go." And so we, um, we, I said, "I'm going to call everybody I know, and we're going to get the word out there, and I'm going to use sort of Celtic style, just being sort of brash and just going out there and saying, this is, you know, this is what we need to do." We looked at in the border retreat. We looked at um, the seal of the place, and in Latin, it said, "So that the deaf may hear and the blind may see." That's what it says. That's the founding principle of Mass Ironier. And so I got goosebumps just when I said it just now. And mm -hmm. so I said, "We're not going to re reduce research. We're going to increase research, or I'm going to die trying." Kind of thing. And are we all in this together? It wasn't just me and by any stretch. It's these amazing researchers over there. We're just trying to support them in their work and augment their numbers. And so we, the board all recommitted, everybody in the board donated, um, and we, we asked everybody, what can you possibly raise in an eight-year campaign or 10-year campaign for Mass High Year? And we came up with a number of like $80 million. And we're like, well, that will be maybe among the very largest campaigns that's ever been raised for blindness and deafness um, to raise $80 million. And so we did a quiet phase for two years. At the beginning of the third year, I got up to the mic at the gala that we instituted, and I said, hey, there are 600 people here. And we're going to raise about two million tonight. And if we raise two and a half million against our initial goal of eighty million, we'll be at hundred and one million tonight. And everybody's like, "Are you kidding me?" <laughs> and uh, and so the development staff was like, "So we're kind of done here." And uh, no, they really weren't, but they were. <laughs> they I'm never, just sort of joking. They never, they never stop. <laughs> but I said, and so I'm just going to announce the new goal for the Mass Pioneer campaign. It's two hundred million. And I hadn't talked to anybody about that. <laughs> I just said two hundred million. And so at the gala we just had in October, we announced that we're two, at 230 million. And I'm retiring from the board in October, and we're going to be over 250. Wow. wow. That's amazing. Nice well, work. it's not yeah. for me. It's the people who gave. It's the Thank you. It's for the thousands of people who gave Absolutely. and the researchers who are doing the work and the patients who are in clinical trials and awaiting and being treated and, and whatever. It's for many other people and to their credit. <laughs>
on the next episode of Dangerous Vision. Which is that we have a great product to sell, which is the world's best research staffs and the world's largest research staffs. And if you can't raise money to fight blindness and deafness, you just can't raise money. You know, I, I am sh quite sure I will, I will hope Kemba's with us the whole rest of his career, but I mean, if he ever moved on for some reason, I would still root for Kemba. He is that special. He said, Dad, you know, I don't, um, actually don't know everything because, I, you know, I can't see. I don't always pick up everything that, um, that sighted people pick up, you know? I go, yeah, well, I got it. He goes, but you know, I, I really think that blind people usually know more than sighted people. You've been listening to the Dangerous Vision Podcast, a production of the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired. I'm David Brown.